Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Season three is in full swing, and today I am so excited to welcome Dr. Geeta Murali, the CEO of Room to Read. Room to Read is an international education nonprofit that seeks to transform millions of children's lives through the power of education. In her 12 years with them, Geeta has achieved a lot, expanding Room to Read's presence to 20 countries and touching the lives of over 20 million children across the globe. Geeta began her nonprofit journey as a program officer at the American India Foundation, an organization committed to improving the lives of under-resourced individuals in India. Prior to that, she spent time in the world of pharma, startups, and also as a teacher. Geeta is a member of the Forbes Nonprofit Council, an invitation-only organization for senior-level executives at nonprofits, and also a member of the Young Presidents Organization. Her extensive and transformational work in nonprofits has been recognized by former First Lady Michelle Obama and the Gates Foundation. A star in the world of social impact, I am so, so excited to welcome her to Trailblazers today. Welcome, Geeta. Thanks, Simi. It's a pleasure to be here. Super excited to have you. And I'm going to do something relatively non-traditional, and I'm going to go way back to the beginning because I think one of the lesser known facts about you is that you are by degree a statistician. You studied biostats at UNC. And when I think statistician, I don't immediately think nonprofit leader. So can you tell us a little bit about that decision to study stats and how that translated to your early career path? Sure. Well, like many others as a child, I wanted to be what I saw. My mother was a huge influence on me. She came from a family where Child marriage was fairly common, left home to avoid marriage too young. She joined the Indian Army, trained as a nurse, Wow. came to the U.S. and took on night duty as a nurse and went to school during the day. So she achieved a doctorate in public health with a focus on biostatistics. She had an incredible career that was driven by her own interests. And she felt like the decision she made gave her freedom to make decisions and be independent. And as a result, she raised me with a strong focus on math and science. (laughs) <laughs> I remember reciting my multiplication tables during car rides when I was three or four years old. Yep. So it is no wonder that I felt pretty confident in those skills. <laughs> and I followed in her footsteps without so much as a question about what else I could do with my life. She had overcome so much. She was proud that I'd started a career as a statistician when I was 22 compared to her starting it in her late 30s. Yeah. She succeeded in making sure that I was financially independent early. I don't think either of us fully understood what I was capable of at that point, but that's the reason (laughs) I started. Yeah, that's amazing. It seems like the motif of education has been prevalent throughout your life. No, I mean, it's foundational, right? It is the reason that she was able to completely change the trajectory of her entire family's life. And so it was ever present and something that I knew that would play a, a central role in my life, perhaps not so clear that it would be as prevalent a theme in my life as it has become, (laughs) but definitely started early. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. It's always interesting to see how things that affected our parents, how that translates into our lives and how we carry some of their dreams forward. So really appreciate you sharing that bit of background. It also sounds like doctorate degrees were something that you had been exposed to at an early age, and you eventually decided to go back after studying stats to get your PhD in South Asian politics. It's a pretty stark contrast, and, you know, PhD is a huge commitment and a break from the working world. Why'd you do it? Well, I initially started taking classes in other areas of interest because I've been just so focused on getting through school and having a secure job that I hadn't really developed a mindset to enjoy learning. So at 22, I was working at a pharmaceutical company near Berkeley and initially just set out to pursue a degree that would allow me to study history and culture, the arts, politics, things that I hadn't really spent a lot of time contemplating. And so along the way, 
I learned I could use my statistics background in the social sciences. And the more I was exposed to, the more questions I had about the world and about myself. And my studies led me to spend quite a lot of time in South Asia. I did some work with election commissions. I heard from communities about their expectations from government. Wow. I guess I just wondered why we couldn't do better as a society and thought a lot about how historical forces kind of create these ideologies that can either help or hurt us. And so I had big questions. And I guess taking time to complete a PhD was one way at that time, the only way (laughs) I knew how to try to address the questions that I had. And in the end, it wasn't enough just answering the question. I wanted to be a part of the solutions to the challenges I was encountering. And I guess that's what took me to the nonprofit world. Wow. And was there an inciting moment when you realized that you wanted to be a part of that solution through nonprofit work? Yeah, I was working on my dissertation and testing questionnaires in local communities across Tamil Nadu, where my family is from. And I went into some pretty remote parts of the state, talking to communities who were voting for different political candidates and considering what they needed from their candidates. And interestingly, as we were having these conversations, most of the time, the question I was asked was, can you make sure that I get my ration card? Can you make sure that there is a school that's more accessible for my child? Wow. Light is out on our street and our children can't study after a certain time. And it was clear that there were very practical challenges that these families were facing in the interest of their own children and their own communities doing better, the next generation doing better. And it just broke my heart. And it felt like I could do more to be a part of the solution. And so I think that was sort of the defining moment for me. Wow. And there's something that you hit on that I'm curious about. You mentioned that you went to Tamil Nadu. And a lot of friends and family of mine that have explored and really delved into the nonprofit world had a very similar journey where they spent time in an under-resourced community and that experience inspired them to go and do the work and invest in it further. But there often emerges this question around volunteerism, where you go to one of these communities, you spend a little bit of time, there's this notion of gratification, but then you leave. It's a tourist-type volunteering experience and it resembles the work of missions and can come off as a bit paternalistic. Is that something you ever grappled with or have considered in your work? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I was very clear in the fact that I was not going to be the person that had the solution in every environment that would solve uh, individuals or a family's or a community's problem. Those solutions have to come from the community itself, right? It understands what it needs. It understands what it aspires to be. What I felt I could do was add networks, resource, best practice from work across many different places, sort of a framework, a platform, if you will, for resources to be more equitably distributed in places that I could channel private resources towards. And I think that's why Room to Read in particular ended up being where I stayed because we are run by local leadership. We believe very strongly in local programming that comes from experts in the education systems of the countries where we're operating. We don't have an expat model, which is pretty common in the INGO world. Yeah, And I think that came from my time working in communities and doing these surveys more with a lens of wanting to learn and understand rather than fix myself, which I don't think is a sustainable model in the sector. Yeah, super interesting. It definitely seems like a grassroots approach that's based in community and focuses on community-led solutions, helps mitigate the potential issue presented by volunteerism, as they call it. Now, we've spoken a little bit about Room to Read and You've been there for over a decade, but before there was room to read, there was the American India Foundation. What led you there? Initially, my work with the American India Foundation was just about learning how nonprofits work. It was my first entry into the nonprofit world. And 
interestingly, a stroke of serendipity, I guess. It was one of Room to Read's founders who was married to a colleague of mine through my life in statistics that initially introduced (laughs) me to AIF. And at the time, AIF was funding Room to Read's expansion into India. And Room to Read was, at that time, quite small relative to what it is today. And at AIF, I learned about how nonprofits garner resources. I wrote proposals. I ran events. Over time, I became a program officer, as you mentioned, and had a chance to work directly with the team in India to develop and roll out a technology program that brought computer labs to schools using partners in the Silicon Valley. And the work we did was incredibly meaningful. It was an eye-opening experience and one I definitely needed as I made a shift into this world full-time. Absolutely. It sounds like AIF was really your training ground. In many ways, yeah. I mean, it definitely introduced me to how nonprofits work. You know, there are a lot of different types of nonprofits and, you know, its approach and model was a very specific one. But at a time where all of my training had been in the quantitative sciences, (laughs) and then, of course, in the social sciences from an academic perspective, it was my first practical experience, for sure, in the nonprofit world. Yeah. Super interesting. And being that it was your first practical experience, I think many of us have a lot of preconceived notions about the world of nonprofits. What surprised you? What generally aligned with what you expected? You know, at times I think people assume that those who choose to work in the nonprofit world, that we do so because we want an easier life, less hours, perhaps, you know, we haven't acquired a higher level of skills. I mean, there's all kinds of misconceptions, I think, about the sector. The nonprofit world is full of highly accomplished individuals with incredibly deep expertise, marketable skill sets, who corporate employers would compete to recruit, right? But these individuals choose the sector because they're fed up with the status quo. They want to be a part of changes that the world needs. They commit resources, skills, passion to to missions that matter to millions of people. Yeah. I think initially it surprised me how much people in the social sector could accomplish with such limited resources. We are bound by overhead ratios and donor interests, but we know the work we do is critical. And so we get creative to attract high quality talent and we deliver high quality work. We build partnerships. We get donated office space, wow. donated software, air miles, you know, and run effective businesses on a much lower budget than our corporate peers. So I think probably more interestingly, some of the trends over the last decade, you see less of a binary now between the for-profit and nonprofit worlds. And I think when I first started- it's a spectrum. Right. The social impact spectrum has just evolved so much, right? Between yep. philanthropy and pure profit. And there's so many different types of organizations that are weighing purpose and profit on an ongoing basis. So the opportunities, I think, to do better are endless for this current generation. In terms of what aligned finding people who- reinforce my belief in the good that exists in humanity every day. You see parents who are willing to do just anything for their children to be educated more than they were. Girls who invest back in their families the minute they're able to. Staff who work harder than anywhere I've ever worked in order to leave the world better than they found it. Yeah. And I needed that. I needed to find people who believed in a better world for all children. And I think I found that. Wow. Super powerful. You know, speaking to that evolution of it going from a binary to a spectrum, I also imagine there was an evolution in talent and what the talent looks like and how they operate in the workplace. And what I mean by that is just with respect to generational development, I feel like the millennial generation and every subsequent generation like Gen Z is more in tune with the issues that seriously plague our time and how to go about organizing and activism and nonprofit work to really provide solutions to those issues that are likely to impact us for many years and decades and centuries to come and demonstrating real commitment to that work. Have you seen that the people who are interested in coming to work for nonprofits evolve or has it largely stayed the same since you first started in this industry? No, I think there's been a lot of change. I think each generation is willing to take more risks, is willing to shift paths more to recognize that they can leverage their skill sets in different ways. And they're not necessarily bound by the degree that they have. And there's that recognition that 
your knowledge does not limit you, right? It's more your imagination. I love that. There's that great Einstein quote that imagination (laughs) is more important than knowledge. Yeah. Because knowledge is limited, right? And we all, yep, it's just limited to what you know and understand while your imagination is what embraces the entire world, right? And it's everything that you ever will know and understand. And so I think in that regard, I realized I could walk away from a job or a career, but the learning that I had would stay with me. It would keep broadening my world. I knew that I would figure my way out. Yeah, And I think that's something that we're seeing a lot more with the generation after me, which is exciting to see. Yeah, I love that point on imagination and also figuring it out. And something that I found really interesting about your career journey is that you've done a lot of different things. You started in the world of pharma, you spent time at a startup, you spent time teaching. Did you ever receive any pushback for not having it totally figured out? Did you believe that you eventually would? Yeah, I think once I realized that the skills that I had stayed with me, right? And I could use them in so many different ways if I chose to, and if I took the risk, you know, and put myself out there, it made it a lot easier, right? To to make each step. And definitely at first, I mean, my mother who worked so hard for me to get independent and stable was definitely worried that I was <laughs> kind of seeking a different path. And I think she eventually realized that that I had the luxury of making those choices, right? Because I could use my skills in different ways and that she made that type of freedom possible, right? With the choices that she made and the skills I had always landed employment and each step I think was a learning experience. We talked a bit about AIF, <laughs> but with a startup, I learned about designing and building products, pitching investors and VCs and marketing, working with engineers to create. So I think the world, it just offers so many opportunities to learn, to experiment and to reflect. And it's just a question of whether we run towards those opportunities or away from them. Absolutely. I have to tell you, it resonates a ton because you know I only graduated three years ago and I've done three different things in that time. And it's Some of it's been scary, but it's also, I think, the beautiful realization, as you just mentioned, is that skills compound. They don't disappear. And being able to apply them in a variety of different places and realize that you don't have to settle because whatever you end up really doing, you might end up doing for the next 40, 50 years, which is a non-trivial amount of time. So, no, I really appreciate that sentiment. It resonates a ton. Yeah, and I think one thing that my life has shown me I reflect on this quite a lot with those who are working on their career paths right now is that I didn't even know this was a potential career path for me. So sometimes locking yourself into too much planning can be limiting. And sometimes you want to take advantage of the opportunities that are right in front of you and the relationships that you have and the networks that you have and the projects that you're doing and sort of be in the moment and make the most of them rather than overthinking it too much sometimes. Absolutely. And like I said, it really, really resonates. And I appreciate you sharing your story because it gives me a window into what the future could look like. I want to transition back to Room to Read because that's obviously where you've spent the bulk of your career well over a decade. You've done work in the corporate world and nonprofits. And from what I understand, the Room to Read seed was planted very early on when you first started to explore the world of nonprofits. What ultimately inspired you to make the leap and actually join the organization? Well, I think ultimately, I was looking for some place where definitely the culture and the people connected with my worldview. And I think that was one piece of it. The other was an organization that didn't only have a good idea and a good mission, in terms of things that resonated with me and what I believed were sort of solving root causes of major world challenges, but also the type of operational excellence, the ability to put the ideas into execution. And I think that's ultimately what's kept me at Room to Read. We are an implementing organization at our core. We continue to want to look at the benefit that we provide to children as our primary driving factor in the decisions that we make. And and our inspiration has always been, it always will be the children we serve, right? And it's that knowledge, right? Like we estimated 250 million children not learning the basics prior to the pandemic. We're now facing the biggest education emergency in our lifetimes. 
1.6 billion children impacted due to school closures. And we can't begin to have enough adults to tackle the inequities that we face, issues like poverty, gender inequality, climate justice, you name it. We have no hope of changing that landscape without more children growing into fulfilled adults, into adults who recognize their ability to solve problems in communities. And every day I have the opportunity to hear about another child, another young woman who was fighting all odds to complete school. And it's just a reminder of the reason that I'm here with you today. You know, my mom made that same call for our family. Yep. And it's a great privilege to be able to pay that forward through the role that I have. Wow. Do you have any memorable anecdotes in this realm that really stick with you about a woman's life being just completely transformed through your work? Oh my gosh, there's so many. And they are quite extreme. There's a young woman, Tay T. She was actually profiled in the New York Times. And her parents burnt her textbooks multiple times to make her stop her education. She's now a teacher, ensuring other girls follow in her footsteps. We have a recent story of a young woman, Roshini, on our program in Chhattisgarh in India. She stopped a child marriage in her village during the pandemic Wow! due to her life skills development that she you know, had achieved during the girls' education program. Or there's a doctor, Sanjay Rasal in Nepal, who benefited from our literacy work. He's now a doctor fighting against COVID for his community in Nepal. Wow. And of course, these are just individuals of millions, right? These are the stories that we hear of every day. And what I think is most important, and and this is what I emphasize quite a lot, is that scale matters. Of course, you know, each individual story touches our heart. It really makes us feel, you know, that what we're doing is fulfilling and and reinforces that. But these are huge systemic issues. And we want the numbers of children we're able to reach more immediately, more quickly go up every year because we don't want to miss out on a generation of children who can help us solve these world problems, who will be the ones that are supporting communities when the next pandemic hits. You know, we we do have to be conscious of the fact that the world continues to evolve and get better, but it also continues to give us challenges. And we need to make sure our children are resilient and able to face those challenges. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because what's become obvious throughout our conversation is that a lot of your work has touched India, where your family's from, and continues to touch India and the broader South Asian subcontinent. How is your identity, how is your PhD in South Asian politics, your connection to our heritage impacted and played into your work? I grew up between the U.S. and India. I moved around actually quite a lot when I was younger. And I think that experience helped me learn from different perspectives. It helped me to become more adaptable. I definitely grew up immersed in Indian culture in a variety of different ways, from the music and the food to the movies. And we love it. <laughs> you know, just like so many others. And so I think because of that, I was incredibly conscious of the importance of diversity in my life. I moved schools every couple of years. I had to figure out where I fit in, in every new environment. And it was challenging, right? But it did, on one hand, show me just how large the world is in terms of diversity, but also just how small it is in terms of just our shared humanity and the things that matter to human beings and their families as we all try to figure out this thing we called life, right? So I do think it played an incredible role in terms of why I want to do what I do. It also, I think, plays a role in the type of leader that I am. I am the first non-founder CEO of Room to Read. The board definitely saw the value in having a CEO who has roots in one of our largest countries of operations and can translate what we were doing and the importance of the context of what we were doing to a global audience. So all of these things play a role. And even in my own personal values, be it my focus on everything from joy and presence to serenity, (laughs) which I don't talk as much about publicly, but all of these things, you know, are influenced by the way that culture played a role and the way I think about these types of philosophies and the way I live my life. Can you speak a little bit more now to the values around serenity? 
Well, I mean, serenity for me is a big one. I think that it's important to recognize that we are limited by our human capacity, you know, and, and you, as much as you work, as hard as you work, as large as the challenges are that you're trying to address, at some point you have to, and this is where I guess a little bit of the cultural comes in, you have to move beyond sort of immediate cycles of pleasure and pain, right? You can't mm. react to every difficult situation in a way that takes you away from your bigger goal, which for me is our mission in reaching more children more quickly. I think one of the bigger challenges you have as a leader is always balancing the individual with the collective. And, you know, as much as relationships are probably one of the biggest strengths, I think that I bring to my leadership style and, and the way I treat people, the way that I think people should be treated. It's a big part of what I share with my team. You can't always control what's happening outside in the world, but you can control the way you treat each other and, and the way you run your organization. But sometimes individual challenges, individual circumstances force people to have to take care of the immediate, be it health challenges, Absolutely. be it you know, your own personal ambitions. Sometimes those conflict with the bigger goal of the organization and those cause challenges. And as a leader, you can't let yourself get too wrapped up in those moments. You, you have to kind of keep moving forward and do the best you can with the information you have and, and be comfortable with that and be comfortable in your own skin to make those types of decisions. Thank you for sharing that. I always enjoy a conversation that gets to dig a little deeper at the leadership style of the person I'm talking to. Speaking to leadership style, a CEO, you get a window into nonprofits that most people don't get and will never get. And from the outside looking in, you hear a lot of stories about people who in the nonprofit world are getting really burnt out or really jaded because you're tackling these massive problems that, as you said, are systemic. It's not something that's going to change overnight or even over the next couple of years. How do you stay motivated? And has there been anything that's made you disillusioned or jaded over the years? You do hear those stories, right? In our field, people who've become senior leaders, they perhaps miss being closer to the work, they're getting burnt out, they're working crazy hours and trying to do the best they can. But I just, I think to continue in this field and to continue to be effective, and we can't all be effective all the time or for extended periods of time. Sometimes we have our moments in life, right? But in order to continue to be effective, you just, you can't get jaded to the point of ineffectiveness, right? If you want to continue in this type of work, we are working in difficult environments. Things are bound to go wrong. There are so many contingencies. And if you look at our world, government policies and approvals, we work in public schools around the world, having the right talent in place, resources being secured, people just getting along, right? I mean, just the basics. <laughs> and so I think if you stop your work every time something doesn't go exactly as you envision it, you just have no hope of making a dent in an issue this big, right? Wow. Yeah. That said, we're human beings. So we have to find ways to seek joy when we're done with our work, to nourish our minds, nourish our bodies. So we have the energy to continue. I do think you have to find warmth and human connection, inspiration, opportunities to learn, to find humor and fun in what you do, both professionally and personally. Absolutely. And I think just as importantly, right, as leaders understanding that we have to encourage our staff to do the same. And sometimes we're unsuccessful in getting through to individuals who do get jaded and burnt out. That is always sad when you know what they're truly capable of. But ultimately, like I was saying before, you know, as, as a leader of an organization, you just have to look out for the mission and the organization as a whole. And that's the responsibility, you know, I've taken on and I have to commit to for as long as I'm in this seat. Ah, Absolutely. I love that. And I really just want to spend a second on the seat that you currently reside in, because I really don't think it's a perspective we get often. Can you share a little bit about what your day-to-day -day looks like? Sure. Well, I guess we'll start by saying no day looks exactly <laughs> the same. <laughs> I you can't tell you the amount of times I've heard that across <laughs> industries. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's definitely something common for executive positions. But at a high level, my work is 
a combination of program strategy and operations, fundraising and brand development. I do a lot of work with boards and partnership engagement and core operations, people operations, technology, financial oversight. I have also taken a keen interest in the development of spokespeople for the organization from across our 60-odd offices and operations in 20 countries. I like to hear about their experiences and elevate their voices to share those experiences more broadly, internally and externally. So the day is a combination, I guess, of brainstorming, implementation, leadership guidance related to these topics. And in pre-pandemic days, of course, I traveled quite extensively related to just all of these areas of work, but like most others, using digital channels for business continuity and staff safety these days. Yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine. I mean, it seems like obviously the pandemic transformed the entire world. But as you said, literacy rates around the world drop because of school closures. The U.S. is just now beginning to open up and... The situation is obviously a lot more dire in other countries that don't have the same level of access to vaccines and healthcare, broadly speaking. How has that impacted your work? We had to redesign the entire organization in a matter of a couple of months last year. We looked at everything from program delivery. We couldn't operate in schools anymore, and we had to reach children where they were, and that was at home. We had to look at the infrastructure available in each community. I think a lot of places defaulted to internet being the channel through which education would be delivered, but we had communities where only one in 10 children had internet access, and even then it was through a parent's phone. So imagine if you have one phone in the home, is it going to be the six-year-old who gets access during the day? So we had to be incredibly thoughtful about the channels of delivery, which led us to radio Oh wow! that 70% of children had access to in our communities, to television broadcast, to hard copy distribution that was using networks for food security and other channels to get into communities and provide access to learning materials, mobile libraries. We did, of course, use the internet in communities that had access But SMS support to parents, particularly parents who are illiterate themselves, needed video tutorials. So we provided those over over SMS and other channels like WhatsApp and Facebook, wherever possible. So it was definitely from a programmatic perspective, an exercise in flexibility. But again, you know, the mission guides you and the children are the focus of our mission. So we look for where the children are and what they can access and deliver programming that way. But even from a business perspective, we do global audits and local audits on our financials. All of that had to be done remotely. We had to shut our offices down for staff safety. And so, you know, ensuring that our 1600 person staff could be supported wherever they were working from and that where school districts did decide to open up, that field teams could immediately get access to those schools and do so safely. So we had to continue to balance our mission with being a good employer that cared about our staff safety. And that was obviously the biggest challenge of the last 18 months. Wow. I mean, truly talk about adaptability and flexibility, but also creativity. I mean, radio and SMS, these are things that in the current world, at least that I occupy, which is obviously a very privileged one, like it wouldn't even occur to me. So super interesting. In that vein, I'm curious, it seems like there's a lot of overlap between what a nonprofit CEO and a corporate CEO have to do. I think that's something that is underrated and and not as well understood. What do you think are some of the core skills that differ in terms of being a nonprofit CEO versus being a corporate CEO that you need to have to successfully do your job? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Strong CEOs in the nonprofit sector have to have many of the same leadership qualities as those in the corporate world. You know, the entrepreneurial vision, business acumen, commitment to execution, right? Emotional intelligence, right? A lot of the things that we hear about, a leadership presence to inspire all of that. But I think if you are going to lead an organization that has a commitment to purpose over profit, then you also need to authentically be motivated by that purpose. And you need to be able to articulate the mission and its value to the world, right? You need to treat your staff the way you want them to treat the people we serve. You need to be driven by a sense of justice in the sense that 
the way you operate needs to reflect what you want to see in the world. And I think in many ways, I mean, that's the biggest challenge, right? Being a reflection of your mission and brand becomes all the more important. The ethics that you stand for, that the ethics that you operate by become all the more important in the work that we do. Absolutely. Super, super interesting. And I imagine just in terms of having these sorts of qualities, generally speaking, there isn't a natural linear upward path in the world of nonprofits. Would you say that's a correct assessment? I think it depends. I mean, it depends what type of nonprofit. There are some nonprofits that operate, you know, somewhat traditionally or looking for skill sets and experience that are very particular to the sector. There are some that are a little bit more of a sort of a hybrid approach and take transferable skills, you know, and train. It depends if it's an organization that tends to hire in earlier in the career and train really hard or one that tends to hire at senior levels from outside the organization. Room to Read definitely has a commitment to internal promotion and growth. And so to the extent that we are able to help develop our teams and help them stay with us because we are, you know, in a growth mode. Uh, we like to see our teams stay with us and benefit from that growth and continue to have impact and grow as individuals as well. So I, I do think it depends. That said, we don't have all the answers, right? If we had all the answers, we wouldn't have all these issues. And so we're always looking to innovate and for new and creative ideas in the work that we do. And so to the extent that there are candidates who are authentically motivated by the mission. They're able to think cross-sectorally and like bring ideas in from different modes of education, from different styles, different personality types. You know, we're always looking for that because that's only going to make us stronger and make our work more applicable to more people around the world. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. And I will admit this is a bit of a leading question because I'm curious to understand your upward trajectory in Room to Read. I mean, you joined in 2009, you quickly become Chief Development Officer. Five years later, you're CEO. How did this all come to fruition? I think it goes back to one of the themes that we touched on earlier, which is that you sort of get to a point where you're able to live in the moment and see what value you can bring to any given situation, you know, that you're faced with. And for me, I had recognized that this mission in particular was one that I wanted to dedicate a significant part of my life to. It didn't matter for me necessarily what my exact job was or where I sat in the org structure. You know, it really mattered to me that I was contributing and that I could identify what my impact was, and I could leave work every day feeling like I was actually changing the world for the better in terms of these particular issue areas. So I think that's one of the pieces that allowed me to be more flexible in terms of the work that I did every day. And as I was saying to you, you just sometimes don't know what career opportunities will open up as you go. So being too rigid with your plans or too judgmental of yourself or your employer, it it can just sometimes cloud the bigger picture. And and a mentor of mine once told me to keep your eye on contributing the best you can to people and projects in any situation and your work will speak for itself and you'll gain from every experience, right? If you approach situations with curiosity rather than judgment. So I do believe that to be true. That was sort of the trajectory that I followed at Room to Read. As chief of development, I could use my quantitative skills. We were at a point in our history where we were looking to develop a sustainable revenue model. And I was privileged to also use my commitment to relationships, I think, to meet and engage with our biggest partners and advocates all over the world, from government partners to board members, to volunteers, to donors. And so when the time came for our previous CEO, Erin, to transition, she was also a co-founder, I'd at that point already worked with her for almost nine years to help build Dream Tree. Wow. We had over a thousand employees. We had a budget approaching 50 million and she endorsed me as the internal candidate. The board did right by Runetreat, I think, and ran a worldwide search to look at other potential candidates against what the organization would need in its next chapter. And, and I was chosen for the role and voted in unanimously. And I think it's a great privilege and responsibility. And I don't take that lightly. Wow. Super, super interesting. And you spent a little bit of time talking about when you were chief development officer, 
you launched a program called Do Not Read, which I think is, you know, relatively unusual for the time, but remarkable in that it drew attention to the number of people, particularly children across the globe, who can't read. Explain the genesis of that campaign. So interestingly, the idea for the Do Not Read This campaign was actually an idea that was proposed as part of an interview prompt by a candidate for one of our marketing positions, Patricia. Wow. And not surprisingly, we hired her immediately and supported <laughs> her execution of the idea, you know, just using our content development and distribution channels. It's a great reflection of one of my core beliefs, which is that great ideas can come from any seat in the organization. And it's our responsibility as leaders to create opportunities for those ideas to surface and assess their potential impact for the organization and give space for them to reach their full potential. And, and this was one such situation, I think. And we continue to see the results of that decision to this day, since you've picked it out as one of the campaigns <laughs> that caught your eye. Yeah, amazing. I, I feel like we keep coming back to that, the idea that, you know, anyone can impact the organization no matter what seat they're in. Particularly, it's beneficial to have people with a diversity of backgrounds and education and things that they've studied, experiences they've had. And you're one of those people with your unique background and stats in this PhD in South Asian politics. How has that played into your work at Room to Read? The statistics degree, I think, you know, kind of the most obvious impact that it's had is the level of, I guess, ease with which the quantitative side of the business comes to me. You know, the way Room to Read is run, it's essential to ensure programmatic impact and financial sustainability. We are a 60 million plus organization as of last year and, and we'll reach far beyond that this year due to actually recently receiving our largest investment in our history, a $25 million investment from Mackenzie Scott. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So definitely, we're always looking at that blend of the quantitative and the qualitative. And having the quantitative background definitely helps with the numbers and the systems and thinking about our people in really important ways. So, Absolutely. What's the hardest part of the job? The hardest is balancing being an employer focused on a mission that overtakes pretty much every element of your decision making with sometimes the individual needs of each individual employee and sometimes those don't align and that's always a difficult conversation to have but in the end i do think that you know as leaders we need to be compassionate and we need to be kind and decisive but also true to what we stand for and what our responsibilities are. And that's always just hard as a human being, but it's just what you have to do as a leader. Absolutely. What do you think has differentiated you as a leader in this field? What, what advice would you give to aspiring leaders on how to stand out and do good work and impactful work in this world? Yeah, I think each person has a unique combination of skills and experiences. So identifying what those are for you and owning them and, and becoming comfortable, as I say, in your own skin and being able to use those skills and experiences to try new things and take risks and not put yourself in a box, I think is, you know, ultimately what will give you more access to opportunity and more inspiration for your imagination, if you will. The other thing is don't undervalue relationships. I think that the people I've been fortunate enough to meet, the mentors I've been fortunate enough to have, they didn't always come from the most likely places. And, you know, I've just been so grateful for the incredible number and diversity of people that have made my life up. And I do think that that recognition is, is probably what I call my secret sauce. <laughs> I've just had such, you know, unique experiences and people that I've had the opportunity to meet and get to know. And, and if you put the people in a room that are closest to me and just looked at them from a distance, you know, based on categories, <laughs> you probably wouldn't understand how they all fit in a room together, right? <laughs> But I think that's what's made my life so rich and my ability to give to Room to Read so fulfilling. Yeah, no, that's really beautiful. And I love that. I think my favorite part of college and even as I emerge into the working world and people start stepping a little bit outside of the cookie cutter role as everyone does the first two years out is the just diverse array of people that you have in a single room and the types of things they're doing and 
the types of conversations that lends itself to. So I, I think it's a really great point and something that I definitely personally take to heart. I'm curious, how do you define success in your role with such far-reaching goals? First and foremost, I am a steward of our mission. The most children possible need to benefit as quickly as possible as a result of the work that I do. So I think that's the primary indicator of success. Second, I would say I'm a steward of the organization, right? I need to ensure that we do no harm, that we continue to seek operational excellence so that our staff are safe and effective and that our donors' resources are used with maximum benefit to the communities that we serve. And then I guess finally, I see success as setting room to read up as an institution to not be dependent on any one individual, but on best practice, on strong ethics, on talented staff and leaders all over the world. You know, I wish more founders saw themselves in that way as stewards of a mission. I think it would lend itself to a lot of good being done, not just in the nonprofit world, but in the private sector and other places as well. And it's super fascinating because what you're doing is so impactful and you just measure success in a very different way. Recently, you wrote an op-ed for the Forbes Nonprofit Council, and it was called Why Doing Good is Good Economics. And it highlights the fact that nonprofit work often goes unacknowledged as contributing to the economy in a significant way. Can you expand on your thesis, particularly for the skeptics in the room? The, the nonprofit sector, it's not like an industry vertical, right, per se. It, it just is so influential, though, nonetheless, right? It sustains a considerable workforce, right? If you look at just the United States, the nonprofit sector is the third largest workforce. It is also the third largest contributor to income and taxes. It has, I believe, something like twice as many workers as finance and insurance combined, right? So it's just a large sector. Yep. Nonprofits can also work across the public and private domain quite nimbly when capitalist markets may not be quick enough, right? Or see the profit in meeting a need. Let's take, for example, universal literacy and something as simple as needing access to books everywhere in the world, right? For children to learn how to read. Absolutely. The reason for-profit publishers don't publish in languages of the poor is because they don't see the profit in it, right? And without high quality reading materials in all languages, how do we expect to tackle universal literacy, right? So in the article, I talk a bit about a project that Room to Read worked on with the World Bank and the Global Book Alliance in South Africa, which is a country where 80% or so of children are not reading at national standards, right? And so we did a project to invest in the local book publishing market, working on both the supply and demand chain for children's literature. And we demonstrated that the project could have a profit of 47% from African language book sales, where typical profits were around 10%. And that was just by pooling procurement, right? And, And making the print runs larger. The point being that nonprofits don't act independent of the economy. They contribute to and they can uplift depressed markets. And I think a lot of times that role can be too quickly overlooked. Absolutely. It's it's really amazing because I feel like you have this bird's eye view of how this not just room to read operates, but functions within this grander ecosystem that is the nonprofit sector and also the economy, broadly speaking. A lot of this story began in Tamil Nadu. Does any part of you miss the grassroots work on a day-to-day basis? You know, I never really viewed my work as being about me, you know, and I think that that's critical to do work in this sector. I think if you are caught up with, you know, what does this mean for me all the time, it's very hard to to truly be at your best for the mission, right, that you're dedicating so much of your time to. And so while I think a lot of my colleagues find great fulfillment from going to see our work and um, being a part of our programs in different ways, which I think is important. And for large parts of our organization, it's necessary even because they're doing program design work and they're you know working very closely with the communities that we serve to make sure that their needs are met. For me, 
it's always been about being the most impactful I could be with the life that I have. And that's why that scale piece is just so important to me. I want to see that the number of children that we're able to reach goes up every year that we're able to prove to ourselves that it's not just about that number going up, but it continues to be at high quality. So getting those, you know, anecdotes from the countries about particular children, of course, continues to fulfill me, but just as fulfilling as our research monitoring evaluation reports that show that the children on our programs are reading two to three times faster than children in controlled schools, that girls are graduating and as young women transitioning into tertiary or employment. There's the you know, stats the major. Right. You know, just as fulfilling, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what makes me feel like, look, we really can make a dent in this issue that sometimes seems too large to comprehend. And so that balance, I think, is necessary and, you know, is, is just as important to me as going into, you know, a school and seeing the children reading. Yeah. That's that's really beautiful and I think very insightful because it's I I think I have a lot of friends who've looked into the sector and really struggle with that as they advance their careers losing that touch point. But you don't really lose it. It's just you expand the purview of what that looks like is what it sounds like. Yeah, ex- exactly. And I think it's important to keep everything in perspective, right? You know, you you talked a little bit about this sense of tourism, right? It's not about us creating an environment where we can feel good about ourselves, right? It's about doing what's just. And that this is what I think organizations like ours should stand for. It is an absolute truth that children everywhere should have access to a quality education, whether I see that or not, right? Yeah. And so I think when you keep that message in mind, if we can make that reality possible for millions of children, then we're doing what we're intended to do as an organization. It's really beautiful. And I feel like there's been so many hard truths in this conversation that I really appreciate. Do you have any parting words for the young South Asians out there who are looking to get into this world and potentially carve a path out that looks not too dissimilar from yours? My advice is don't limit yourself before you've even gotten started expand your imagination. And probably when you think you're at the end of what you can achieve, you can probably do 10x that. So (laughs) if this is the world you want to be in, you know, make it happen, figure out where you can contribute and just jump right in and do it. You'll find a way. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Keitha, for taking the time today. You are honestly one of the first nonprofit leaders we've had on the podcast. And there's, I think, just a lot of treasured insights here. And I'm really, really excited to share this. And I think it's really going to resonate with people. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Simi, for having me. It was a pleasure to have the conversation. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.